You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to National Security Law Today. This week, we return for part two of our conversation with cybersecurity and data privacy expert Michael McLaughlin as he dives deeper into cryptocurrencies, foreign malign influence campaigns, and makes suggestions for restructuring the U.S. government approach to cybersecurity. If you haven't already listened to part one from last week, be sure to check that out. Thanks for tuning in, and here's Elisa. Let's talk for a second about the role of virtual currency, which Congress seems very reluctant to rein in. Frankly, there have been people who were very much virtual currency aficionados and millionaires who found their way into Congress for a term here or there. And a lot of them are sort of driving the notion that, hey, Bitcoin, these things, this is just a libertarian concern. You know, it's just something that we would like to do and we, it doesn't need to be regulated by the government. It doesn't quite work that way, though. Why don't you talk a little bit about the interplay between virtual currencies like Bitcoin, Ether, and then some of the enhanced anonymity cryptocurrencies and this ransomware problem and where that money ends up? So the difference between the different types of cryptocurrencies is generally the way in which they are created. Bitcoin, for instance, is mined. Bitcoin is a proof of work coin. And what that means is if, Elisa, you and I both have computers running and we are Bitcoin miners, we are effectively solving a very complex math problem with our computers. And Bitcoin works as it spits out an algorithm. And then there's a race between Bitcoin miners to whose computer can solve that math problem the fastest. If you're the first to solve that very hard math problem, then you get some percentage of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is then created, and that's how it's mined, so to speak. But once those blocks are created, they're on the blockchain that is an immutable ledger, and it's subject to public scrutiny. And the important part about this is, though Bitcoin wallets are pseudonymous, or you know, we use the term anonymous, but they're, they're really not. You have a number that's attached to it. My Bitcoin wallet has a number, your Bitcoin wallet has a number. Those numbers are going to be on that blockchain. They're going to be on there forever. And it's going to be, what was the transaction? What was the amount that went between us? And from whom to whom? And so in a lot of ways, blockchain in Bitcoin is actually a perfect ledger and something that lends itself very well to public scrutiny and lends itself very well to investigations. And this is something that companies like Chainalysis or in the FBI as well have leveraged greatly to their example to identify a lot of ransomware actors or to identify child pornography rings or child exploitation or human trafficking rings. And it's because the immutable nature of these ledgers and the fact that they're public and open to scrutiny makes it such that they can actually identify the two individuals whose wallets they're going to. In, in this well, is provided becoming... the wallet hosting service information, you can eventually get that, but there are unscrupulous wallet hosting yeah. service exchanges is what they're called, actually. And Bitcoin is one, but we got all these enhanced anonymity cryptocurrencies. But the bottom line is Bitcoin is something that is a, a real help to those who would like to send out ransomware. Oh, it is. And you mentioned the anonymous coins. So Bitcoin is one. Others don't do it in that way, or the blockchain is not public. And so the blockchain being private, it's not subject to any sort of inspection by, by anyone. And so what do you do there? And because these coins now become a tool for money laundering, they become a tool for buying and selling illicit goods and services on the dark web or, or really wherever. And these, this creates a significant challenge. And that's really the million dollar question right now that Congress is trying to face is how do you regulate this? Because if you just ban Bitcoin writ large, or if you ban Ether, or if you ban XRP or any of these other coins that exist, 
does that solve the problem of ransomware? Because if the challenge is we're trying to resolve the ransomware problem, the fact that those coins are illegal or are, are banned in the United States doesn't necessarily mean that ransomware actors who are primarily operating in Eastern Europe are going to cease using them. All they're going to say is you need to find a way to pay us. And whether that's transferring money, currency, fiat currency from your account to a bank in the Bahamas that's going to turn that into Bitcoin and then pay the ransomware actor, that's more likely the situation which would occur as opposed to getting the actual outcome where you just can't do a direct transfer of Bitcoin from victim to perpetrator. And so I think we're trying to solve the wrong problem by banning cryptocurrencies writ large. But as it is right now, what we have is the registration and compliance rules under the Bank Secrecy Act. And that seems pretty woefully inadequate because truth be told, ransomware is paid in virtual currency, period, full stop. Criminals use virtual currency for all sorts of illicit activities. And it's not clear to me that these are an interesting idea, but it's not clear to me that they're really solving any significant problem. But what they are doing, I think, according to your book, is they're enabling cyber actors and in particular state actors to perpetuate a host of ills, including but not limited to ransomware, placing U.S. companies in a position where they're now going to have to get a wallet hosting service and transfer money into that and then send a transaction via Bitcoin. And that's what they're looking at if they don't invest, quite frankly, in cybersecurity. If Congress doesn't do something more to regulate virtual currency writ large, this will continue. And one of the problems is is a dynamic. It doesn't lend itself easily to any kind of laws or regulations because it's a stateless, lawless, peer-to-peer international system for transferring funds. We just don't have any control over it. And we have to think seriously before we start making laws and make laws that would have some efficacy is sort of the argument I feel like you've made. And to that end, I think you brought up a good point about the way in which the wallets are structured or whenever you have an account from which you are transferring funds to or from. U.S.-based companies, there there are these know-your-customer laws. If you're a U.S.-based wallet or if you're a U.S.-based exchange, you have to know who your customer is. And so that requires, in a lot of cases, if you sign up for for a wallet with Coinbase, for instance, you have to have a government-issued ID that you're holding up next to your face, along with a piece of paper that says your name, the date, the the time of day, and then you have to take a selfie with that. And so if the US wanted to get serious about regulating cryptocurrency for the purposes of ransomware and fleshing out criminal activity and illicit activity that utilizes cryptocurrencies, it would need to be more of an international approach. And that's something that because we don't have our own house in order, we can't begin to approach the international community and say, we are going to have a coalition for regulating cryptocurrencies and digital currencies. And this is what we think we need to do going forward. The crux of the problem is, I think, the fact that we don't have enough of our house in order that we can move forward with the international community and say, here's a problem, here's our proposed solution. Let's shift for a second. Another threat concern of vulnerability is this massive shift to cloud computing. I think a lot of people don't really have any idea what cloud computing is. Why don't you just set forth in the most rudimentary terms what it is, why it isn't secure, and what problem it's solved? Cloud computing, in its most basic sense, is simply using somebody else's computer or somebody else's server to store your data. A cloud is just a data center that's somewhere else, that exists somewhere else, or really in multiple places. And so if you have a cloud environment, and let's say you're using Amazon Web Services or Microsoft Azure or, or Oracle or any of the different capabilities, different different cloud service providers, your data storage, if you're in, in the DC area, is probably in Virginia. 
and, and somewhere in the, the Northern Virginia corridor in a very, very large data center that's being cooled by massive air conditioners and your data is staying there and it's, you're able to access it whenever you want it. Now, the benefits of that are the fact that, you know, if you're storing with Microsoft, well, Microsoft is pretty good at IT and they're, they're pretty good at cybersecurity. And so if you are a startup or if you're a three or four person company and you don't want to store all of your data on site and you don't want to have all of the overhead for cybersecurity, you can store your data in the cloud and you can be pretty sure that your data is going to be better off and better secured in that cloud environment than it would be if you had an on-prem or on-premises server. And in a lot of cases, that is very much true. You actually offer some solutions here because a lot of people talk about this as a problem, but you have some basic suggestions for what could shift this vulnerability. Do you mind talking about a couple of those? Certainly. The problem you run into is that it's, it's understanding what type of cloud environment you're using. It's not just your storage for your iCloud and for your photos. It's it's used for all sorts of things. And there, there are public clouds or private clouds. There are hybrid clouds. There's software as a service, platforms as a service, infrastructure as a service. All of these different capabilities and these cloud solutions provide different tools for companies to use. But each one of these tools needs to be used for its specific purpose. And each one of these tools needs to have security built in, but it needs to be built in at the user side or on the company side, not on the cloud service provider side. And so, for instance, if you're utilizing a cloud environment and you're storing your data somewhere, in a, if it's in a public cloud environment, for instance, you should know that that data is not your most sensitive data because a public cloud environment is potentially accessible by others. That's the whole point behind it. Or the data itself and the, the throughput may be throttled by the cloud service provider, depending on how many people are accessing their environment at any given time. If you're a hospital, for instance, and you're relying on patient records, those patient records should not be in a public cloud environment because you may not have access to them when you need them. You would want to put those patient records in a private cloud environment. And that private cloud environment should be very highly secured if you're storing things like patient records. That should have multi-factor authentication. You should make sure that it's only those users who are authenticated and who have a need to know who have access to that. And you should be upgrading and maintaining your security and all of your patches and ensuring that your cloud service provider is doing the same thing. But being able to separate what it is, what parts of your business are being stored where and not just having a one-size-fits-all solution for everything you do is absolutely critical. And we don't really have any laws that require these solutions be implemented at this point. Let's talk about something else that we're going to smell and feel here in the coming year. And that is these constant foreign malign influence efforts. I think people might just imagine this in the social media context, but this is a broader concept. So for the man or the woman who's sitting outside the beltway, who runs a small business, doesn't have the time or bandwidth to delve into these topics. Can you explain what malign influence it is and how it hurts America? So malign influence, you know, a lot of times you hear malign influence and you think to yourself, it's like foreign actors. And we think the Russian troll farm in St. Petersburg that undermined the 2016 presidential election. You know, when, when the Donald Trump video with Billy Bush came out, and then immediately all of the documents were leaked about the, the Podesta emails and the, the compromise of the DNC with Hillary Clinton right at the, the beginning of October, just ahead of the elections. That's the, what we think of when we think of malign influence. And it's really a nation state pulling the cords or handling the throttles to try to disrupt or impact uh, or undermine our political systems. And while that's absolutely true, that is, that is certainly one element in a 
I would say on the very far end of the spectrum of malign influence, we're seeing malign influence on a daily basis. And malign influence is everything from individual profiles on social media that are are just retweeting and reposting the same thing over and over again, trying to undermine the system or trying to get into the main and trying to get into the dialogue and try to penetrate different echo chambers such that what the message that they're pushing is being advanced. Those are happening on a daily basis, and it's not just the Russians who are doing it, it's the Chinese who are doing it, it's the Iranians who are doing it, it's North Koreans who are doing it. And the goals of those different entities is slightly different, but ultimately it's to keep us off balance and it's to keep us in our echo chambers. Some, something you mentioned earlier was we talk about, you know, how is it that we are unable to, from a legislative perspective, really push an agenda? Well, and it's because we are so incredibly polarized at this time. And everyone is looking around saying, well, why are we so incredibly polarized? And people point to social media and they say it's the atomization of every issue. And it's that you're in your echo chambers and you have 60% of American adults who are only getting their news from social media and they're no longer reading the newspaper or no longer gaining an independent opinion. They're just they're getting what is being spoon fed to them by social media. And a lot of times, yes, that is the problem. However, that's not the only problem. It's the fact that we have foreign actors who are actively engaged in information warfare against us. They're targeting us and they're trying to influence us in such a way that we stay polarized, that we stay divided. And this is well, one of we, the and we seem to fall for it. Hook, line, and sinker. We seem to love those dopamine hits from social media and we love having our opinions validated. Absolutely. And way beyond that. So let's let's just use Instagram, right? Instagram as the example. And every time you post an Instagram photo and somebody likes it, you get that dopamine hit. And that's all well and good. Well, where is that data going? And so you have that photo that you posted there. Well, Instagram owned by Meta is now going to take your images. And if you look, ever look at your terms of service or the privacy policy on Instagram, after it's spending the 46 hours it's going to take to read it, what you're going to realize is that Meta is using all of the data, anything that you update or anything that you put in there, and they're using it to train AI algorithms. And it's not just the photos that you're uploading, but it's also the location, the metadata that's in the photos. It's also your phone and where you are at the time that you upload those photos. It's also your contacts on your phone, in addition to the contacts that you have on Instagram. And all of that's being used to train their algorithms to enhance the user experience and to create better capabilities so that they can more appropriately and more efficiently target you with advertising. Commercial end, right? And that's, again, I say that's all well and good. It's not, but that's the existence that we have. That's our, that's our reality. Now take that and translate it to TikTok. And here is the problem. Facebook and Meta are US-based companies subject to US laws who have a commercial end in mind. They want to advance their own economic interests. They want to advance their revenue, advance their bottom line, serve their shareholders. TikTok is a subsidiary of a company called ByteDance. ByteDance is a Chinese-based entity that builds AI for the Chinese government. It is entirely controlled by ByteDance, and ByteDance is subject to Chinese laws. I, what's the problem? I just put up my little dance videos, right? Right, right. Just that little dance video. Well, that dance video, think about all the information that's being pulled off of that video. And so from a facial recognition standpoint, if it's just your face, all of those different data points now, they have the ability mm -hmm. to identify, positively identify you. And think about what Clearview AI has been able to do just with photos. Yeah, yeah. But, but Chinese... you know, we've had those hearings and I haven't seen any legislation and I haven't seen anybody take it more seriously. It was a bit of theater, it felt like, because I didn't see yeah. any consequences. 
And and that that's that's one of the huge problems is that we're not getting behind any sort of federal data privacy regulation that's really going to rein in big tech or social media in the U.S. by itself, let alone push legislation that's going to protect us from national security concerns like TikTok. Well, the former President Trump has already dog whistled Putin in a sense that he has said that he'd withdraw American support for Ukraine in the conflict with Russia if he's elected. A lot of people are saying, look, this signals Putin that his absolute best chance of defeating Ukraine is to get President Trump elected. So what do you expect will happen in the run up to the election? The the same thing that the Russians have been doing for really decades. I mean, this goes back to the, the 1980s. The Russians conjured up the idea that the, the United States created the AIDS virus in Africa as a, a, a tool of racism. And they pushed this. And this was something that caught hold in a lot of areas. That it was repeated US... in major newspapers. Yeah. And that was back in the 80s before social media. Yeah. And so now we've got this echo chip. But the Russians are very good at this. They call it desinformatia, and disinformation is where the word comes from. But in Russian, this is a tool of influence. This is a tool of their their military, their intelligence, their security apparatus, and they use it very, very efficiently. And so certainly they're going to try to undermine the election. Certainly they're going to try to conduct activities that that undermine what we're doing and try to infiltrate our social circles and uh, infiltrate our political circles such that they get the end that they want. And if the end that they want is to get President Trump elected, which if President Trump signaling to Putin that he's going to pull out all support for Ukraine, certainly that's going to be something that's in Putin's best interest. But even if President Trump didn't say that, Putin's best interest is to keep us divided and to keep us destabilized. And it's the same interest that the Chinese have. A united America, a united West is something that completely undermines these authoritarian regimes. So they're going to do everything they can to keep us divided. I want you to talk for a minute about what you and your co-author have proposed about sort of a shift in what the executive branch should look like in response to this and why really, quite frankly, anything short of that just isn't going to work. Yeah. So presently, responsibility for cybersecurity, digital policy, cyber defense, intelligence, cyber warfare, law enforcement functions, they're all spread very broadly across the federal government and and primarily across the executive branch. The problem that we run into is that in a lot of cases, Cyber security, cyber operations, cyber warfare, information warfare, espionage, they all blend together. And a good example of this is the solar winds attack. And so the solar winds attack was the, the Russian foreign intelligence service, the SVR, penetrating solar winds such that the Orion software, which solar winds developed, would go out to 18,000 different customers with a backdoor in it. Penetrating a software supply chain in this way allowed them to very rapidly access tons of different companies and federal agencies. Well, what was the purpose behind it? It was the SVR, and so we believe it was espionage. In cyberspace or in cyber warfare, you don't know the intent behind why a network is compromised until it actually is compromised. And so the same exact method by which an adversary would compromise a network for espionage is the same way that they would compromise the network if they were going to conduct a cyber attack that would take down an electric grid. You just don't know until something actually goes boom. And that's the problem. And so having all of these different authorities spread across the the federal government doesn't really make sense when you're dealing with adversaries whose every action looks like something else. And so right now we have law enforcement under Title 18. We've got the the military operating under Title 10, in some degrees, Title 50. Got the intelligence community operating under Title 50. 
the problem with that is each one of these are silos. And if you continue to operate in silos, then you're not sharing information. And not only are you not sharing information, but you're not being interoperable where we need to be interoperable. And so instead, to better align U.S. government efforts with the threats that are actually facing America, the government should make two very large sweeping changes. And I recognize that these are it's it's hard for us to make large sweeping changes as a government when we have a hard time focusing on, well, you know. But we have. When we've and, had and to we do have. it, we've done it. And I quite frankly think you provide a reasonable roadmap for what could happen. Go ahead. It's well, it's important. And so the two sweeping changes we propose are the first is to remove CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, from the Department of Homeland Security and elevate it to a cabinet level agency. And we would name it the Department of Digital Services. And in the Department of Digital Services, you would have this headed by the National Cyber Director as a a cabinet level secretary. And within there, you would have all of the different cyber organizations from across the government. There would be law enforcement authorities, there would be a military service, which I'll get to in a second. But you also have all of the critical infrastructure. You have all of the oversight. You have all of the intelligence and the central manning and functioning of our cybersecurity apparatus in one place. You would also have functions like NIST, where they're putting out the special publications that are dealing with cybersecurity and the cybersecurity framework or the, the handling of controlled unclassified information. All of that would be held within one organization And if you have it within one organization, then you have the ability to better manage and better respond to different types of activities. But cyberspace is way too broad. And currently, the way it's set up is you have every government agency has a different division or a different shop that they designate as cyber. Well, they do that so they get funding. And that's also why they're fighting tooth and nail to not give up their cyber division because they don't want to lose that funding. And so does the Department of Agriculture really need a cyber division, or should that be fall under a different element that's going to protect the Department of Agriculture? The other thing is how all of the sectors of the economy, for example, that could be impacted by any kind of a cyber threat are managed by different federal agencies. And it makes no sense to have it so that these agencies who often sort of are territorial with one another kind of compete for the ability to respond to something that they don't have the ability to respond to and they never will. And that this has created like this this sort of busyness and dysfunction that isn't really related to the ultimate goal of protecting Americans and American businesses and property. What I liked about what you said is it makes perfect sense because the topography of the threat has changed. It's definitely cyber and digital. And these institutions were created for sort of a different, more kinetic situation where battles were fought largely on the sea or the land, and they're not going to be anymore. And we're not ready for that. And we're already seeing incursions by the enemy that are more or less constant and affect the equities of every single federal government agency. And to that point, the federal government, the way it has been structured, it was purpose built in a bygone era. It was purpose-built to resolve analog threats and to, to respond to analog threats. Well, we're now in a digital era, and we need to respond with a more digital solution or a more uh, solution that's more conducive to the threat that we're facing. And so having all of these competing organizations that really have no teeth or no ability to respond is just it's it's ineffective. At best, it's ineffective. And so to have, a, like, for instance, have a pipeline If you operate a petroleum pipeline in the United States and you're hit with ransomware, you have to report that up to the Transportation and Security Administration, 
who then reports it to CISA. But none of those organizations actually have the ability to respond and help you. You're still left to your own devices, despite the fact that you have these reporting obligations. So what is CISA going to do with that information now that they're a central repository and a focal point for that information to actually secure the federal government or to respond to that cyber attack? And the answer is, well, nothing. And why? Because CISA doesn't have any authority to actually respond. So it's Whereas, just la- layering process as opposed to being directed toward results. Exactly. And yeah. which is why we are our second recommendation, in addition to the Department of Digital Services, is to establish, to finally establish a standalone cyber force. And the standalone cyber force is something that I think is long overdue. I mean, we created a space force long before we created a cyber force, which still doesn't exist. But currently, you've got U.S. Cyber Command, which is modeled after U.S. Special Operations Command, in that it's a functional combatant command that has global jurisdiction. The problem is is that cyberspace functions really more similarly to a geography than anything else. And so now you've got U.S. Cybercom, and they have acquisition authority, and they have this advanced training, and they get additional funding. And all of this is to make up for the fact that the individual military services are not equipped to actually man, train, and equip the combatant command in the way they're supposed to. And so our model for this is the cyber force should be established not to replace the individual military services and the cyber service cyber components that fall under U.S. Cyber Command, but to supplement them. A cyber force would be structured with a charter that it is going after malicious cyber actors specifically. And we already have an organization that does this, that is a sub-unified combatant command under Cybercom, and that's the Cyber National Mission Force. Well, the Cyber National Mission Force takes forces from every other service and puts them into national cyber protection teams or national mission teams to go conduct these operations at the direction of U.S. Cybercom. So those forces are already allocated away from their primary service. And so this wouldn't be an additional cost on the service. The problem, though, is even just keeping it within the Department of Defense doesn't get around the fact that these, these forces aren't imbued with the proper authorities that they need to actually combat the threats that we're seeing in cyberspace. So right now, the military is operating on Title X authorities where they can go and conduct military operations against malicious cyber actors but they can't conduct law enforcement functions. They can't conduct counterintelligence operations. They can't conduct intelligence gathering by them unto themselves. And so we are restricting them where our adversaries are viewing cyberspace as a green field where they can conduct any sort of operation, overlapping operations, and they can basically use their tools for either espionage or for warfare. And as we saw with solar winds, we just don't know. Let's assume this thing gets created at some point. Someone's going to have to do it. We're, you know, we don't want to face a cyber Armageddon, but we're going to have to staff any of these things with cybersecurity warriors. And right now, as I look out at the country, certainly we don't have a national education system that would adequately train young people who, for example, live in Rust Belt states where property values are low, even though property values are expected to fund education, they're maybe not getting the best education. I just don't see us doing the kinds of things that say, hey, next generation, we're going to create these cybersecurity warriors and you're looking at a new potential career path rather than being on the automotive line or in the mines. What do you think would change this? What do you think could bring more people into that type of workforce when I suspect there are just tons and tons of capable people out there who could be trained and brought into this? And to highlight that shortage in the workforce problem. There are, there are currently 700,000 cybersecurity jobs that are unfilled in the United States alone. 
where we are facing a cyber workforce shortage of that magnitude, the U.S. cannot afford to disclaim or marginalize any group. And for Congress to address this, it should address the issue as several different issues. You one of sound which... vaguely woke, but also practical. <laughs> I, uh, I, I try not to sound woke as much as I can, but there are some times where it overlaps. It overlaps. It's just common sense. <laughs> you know, we've got lots of different populations. We need to train them up. We can't afford to allow people to be marginalized. And that's the, what it comes down to is we have a lot of people in our country and we have a lot of people who are very capable in our country and we are allowing them to just fall by the wayside. Yet we have this 700,000 person shortage and Congress is not doing anything to address it. We're not addressing the educational issues that we have in this country. We're not actually putting funding towards STEM programs. We, we say we are, but we're, we're not really. And when I say STEM yeah, compared programs, to China, do you think we're putting funding towards STEM programs? Absolutely not. Compared I to mean, Russia, and, even per capita? Hmm. Well, and, and I am I am a military veteran. You'll never hear me complain about the military budget. But when we're putting almost a trillion dollars towards our defense and not anywhere near that towards our education system, there is a bit of an imbalance. There is there is a bit of a problem. These are big changes that you've suggested in this book. And I quite frankly think they're brilliant. You know, we did have major shifts in this country with the National Security Act of 1947, 48. We've had to do this before. You know, Eisenhower put together, what was the name of that committee? Come on, you've been in the military, where they looked at how to beat back, you know, the threats from the Cold War. And major things came out of that. Major changes were made. So I think it's a time where we can do that. And I think we're at, at a very, very critical point in our nation's history where we need to. As we face down China and Russia, and we face down these different threats, we are looking across the board and we're saying, what are the problems with our country and how can we become more unified? I think the problems that we're facing externally can serve as a lightning rod that can bring us together, but they can only do that if we're willing to look externally and say, we are Americans and we as Americans are going to solve this problem together. And right now, cybersecurity and cyber warfare is one of those areas where there is no partisanism. This is a bipartisan problem that we can solve, but we have to come together to do it. And it's something that we absolutely can, and it's something that we absolutely should. And if we don't, we really only have ourselves to blame in 10 years when we look back and we see that China has surpassed us economically and militarily. I just hope that staff on the Hill, members of Congress will read this book and consider a couple of things, obviously the solutions that you propose, but if fear is a motivator, I think they should consider whether their failure to act will present a permanent blight on all of their legacies. And I really appreciated reading it. It was a pleasure. But mostly what I really was dazzled by was both the suggestions for solutions and the way you've compiled the facts so that it's really difficult for anyone with a brain to argue that we're called to a time of action. So I value it a lot. And I'm really glad that you came on to talk to us tonight. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. We're going to hyperlink to places where you can get Mike's book. Our guest tonight has been Michael G. McLaughlin. He is the co-author of Battlefield Cyber, How China and Russia Are Undermining Our Democracy and National Security. It is a must read if you're in the national security space or if you're just an American who cares. Thanks for listening. And we invite you to subscribe, like and rate us on your listening app of choice. Be sure to share this episode with a friend. Have an intelligent conversation about how to respond to these looming and growing cyber threats as a nation. 
America's national security depends on our ability to find a lingua franca or common language in a time of social media echo chambers. But you can find us on Twitter, now we have to call it X, as well as other platforms under the handle at ABA NATSEC. Have thoughts you want to share with us? You can actually reach out by email. We'll answer. You can find us at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Potid, and I'm always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. And my other producer, the ever lovely, ever brilliant Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. And before you go, mark your calendars for the 33rd Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law, CLE Conference, this November 16th through 17th, held at the Renaissance Washington, D.C. Downtown Hotel. Don't miss out on engaging presentations, thought-provoking panels, and unparalleled networking opportunities. Registration link and event details can be found in the episode description. We look forward to seeing you there. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.